0: Well, if you have a Bible, track it down. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Uh, if you grab one out of the book rack in front of you, it should be on page 1050, 1050. And I'll read the passage, then we'll pray, and we will get to work this morning. First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Reads like this To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word together this morning, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice loud and clear and you would help us to think through what it looks like to be a part of a well-ordered church, a place where the kingdom of God is made visible and real. So Lord, help us to embrace this high and holy calling. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me remind you of just the overall theme of the letter, because I think that helps us to kind of land the plane here. This is the final chapter and the final section of the letter that, for, that Peter wrote, and uh, we're going to see a few things that he says in closing here in a moment, but let's just remind ourselves of the big theme. In, in chapter one, he opens the letter addressing all the churches, all the individual believers scattered throughout all of Asia, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, all these different places, and he calls them something very, very special. He says, you are elect exiles. And he's telling them then that they have this unique identity, that they are to relate to the world in a new way, because they are now the people of God. In fact, later on in chapter 2, he says, you are the ethnicity of God. You are God's chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. God. That you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a new creation. You have a new citizenship. You are a representative of him and his kingdom. And unfortunately, that kind of puts you out of place and out of step with the rest of the world. In fact, that's the main thing that he's saying in the letter. He's saying, if you are following Christ, you should expect that you will be treated like him. He did not fit their categories. He did not fit their preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be like. He didn't fit any of the worldly ideologies of the day. He was far too theologically conservative, and he was far too socially liberal. He, just, he, he upset everybody, so the political leaders and the religious leaders hated his guts. And what did they do? They killed him. They said, we can't have this guy. He is a problem. He doesn't, doesn't do what we want him to do. He doesn't meet our expectations. He's just, he's just off. And so they were so frustrated by him that they did in fact execute him, but he is very much alive and well. And so Peter's writing and he's saying, look, if you're following him, if you're following the suffering servant, what do you expect the world is going to do to you? You should not be surprised by the fiery ordeals that you will go through. This is not abnormal. It is not strange, but this is a part of faithful following of the Lord himself so be ready for it. And in fact, you have a job to do in the meantime. Be good. Or we could put it like this, live beautifully. Live such beautiful lives that though the pagans accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. You're going to suffer and you're going to have to wait for that glory or that inheritance to come. It is coming, but in the meantime, Christians have a job to live beautifully before a watching world that is treating us with hostility. And so now he comes to the closing and he says, I've got a few final words to give. A few different people that I need to make sure we're all on the same page here. So he has a word to the elders or the spiritual leaders. He has a word to the young, those that are following those spiritual leaders. A word to all of us. And then some closing words in the final three verses. So let's get to work with those four different sections that he gives us here. A word to the elders in verses one to four. Now the first thing we might want to do is say, okay, what's an elder? Now elder comes from the Jewish tradition and it really does mean the old people. Like the the, in the Jewish faith they would have the elders would be those who are the most experienced, who've lived the most life, and they are leaders of the community. Now that gets carried over to the New Testament church and it becomes more of an official title. It becomes an, an office Of the church. It's a a special leadership role within the local church where people are supposed to meet certain criteria, and then they're supposed to be appointed to that position with, in the words of the New Testament, a laying on of hands, an appointment to that that task. So he's writing to the spiritual leaders, and here's why. The local church is supposed to be the place where we can learn to walk by faith in the Son of God while going through hostility and difficulty, if the local church is off, game over. It, it becomes incredibly hard for us to do anything near what he's suggesting here. So first he begins with the leaders. To the elders among you, verse 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. He says to the elders, I'm appealing to you. And he doesn't pull out his credentials of like, yeah, I'm an, I'm an authorized I'm I'm an apostle, I followed the Lord, I've got all these different experiences. He says, look, I'm appealing to you as a co-equal, as a fellow elder. And here's what he's going to do here in this this final section. He's going to say, what we most need is a posture of humility. And so even when he begins to address the leaders, he's saying, look, I'm not telling you what you need to do as an apostle. I'm appealing to you on the basis of that shared calling that we have as leaders of this thing. As a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share share in the glory to be revealed. We'll be standing side by side when we get to glory, and we'll share that glory together. So what does he say? Do your job. As a fellow elder, do your job. Here's what it is: it's shepherding. Look at verse two: be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Be shepherds. And we might say, okay, what's he talking about here? It's it's the the Latin word is pastor. That's why we call people like me pastors. Because the work of of eldership is the work of pastoring. And shepherds, you know, it's a metaphor, but literally speaking, what do shepherds do? They have a flock of sheep, and it's their responsibility to lead that flock faithfully. That they're supposed to take a flock, and they're supposed to coordinate all these individual members of the flock, moving in harmony together to an intended location, whether that be a pasture, or the fold, or whatever the case might be. They're to lead. Leading is one aspect of the shepherding task. They're to feed the flock, to give the flock good nutrition, to take them to places where they can lap up clean water and feast on, you know, green grass and do different things like that. They're to protect the flock. Uh, There are predators out there like wolves that'll come in and ravish the flock. And the shepherds have the job of watching over them, of taking different shifts and making sure that the wolves aren't creeping in and stealing away the sheep from the flock. They're to care for the flock. Ezekiel 34 tells us all these different functions of how they care. They're supposed to go after the wandering. If a sheep wanders off, they don't go, oh, that's too bad, we lost another one. No, they're to leave those that are together and they're to go after the wandering to retrieve them. They're to bind up the wounds of those that are injured or need medical treatment. And finally, uh, they're, they're to deal with the aggressive members of the flock who are trampling things underfoot and shouldering the other individuals and selfishly abusing other people who are a part of the, of the flock. So that's the literal task of shepherding. Now it's applied to spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders, what are you supposed to do? Be shepherds over that flock that God has entrusted to you. Do your job and do this job as well as you possibly can. Do your job of leading the flock where it needs to go. Coordinating efforts to ensure that everyone is able to travel in harmony together feeding the flock is the teaching ministry of the local church. It's the teaching of the word of God that, that brings, like the Bible puts it like this, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the teaching ministry of what I'm doing right now, but also the discipling ministry of the church is all in view here. We're supposed to feed the flock that God has entrusted to our care. We're supposed to protect the flock because there are threats. There's false teaching, false ideologies, things that are untrue and unhelpful. And those things are all trying to combat your faithfulness to Christ. And we have a job to try to set some healthy boundaries and parameters to ensure your spiritual well-being. We're to care for you by going after the wandering and treating the wounded with soul care. We're to discipline those who are aggressively doing harm to others. We're, we're to care for you in this comprehensive way. And so when Peter writes and he says, leaders... As a fellow leader, I need you to do this. Shepherd the flock that's under your care. And then he says, do it with a proper attitude and motivation. He gives a few different categories here. For instance, look at verse two, not under compulsion, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. The job is not one where you go, I have to do it. It's my job. It's a high calling that God wants us to be invested in because we want to do it. We are willing and eager to serve in this way not for financial reasons. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. There's a way to do ministry that's all about financial gain. There's a way to do ministry that looks at a group of people and preys upon them financially. And you, false teachers do this all the time. It's a message that people love to hear, and then they financially support it. And the false teacher is becoming wealthy, is, you know, It's a financially advantageous thing for them to do. And this is saying that is not the case for a true shepherd. A true shepherd is not pursuing dishonest gain, but is eager to serve the flock for their benefit. And finally, not in a heavy-handed way, look at verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The leadership of the local church needs to look like a, a gracious and caring entity, not lording it over Jesus taught his disciples, he said, listen, the kings and the rulers and the princes, they rule it, they, they lord over those that they rule. Not so with you. You must serve. And in case they didn't get that one clear, he, he showed them. He took a towel, put it around his waist, he got down, he started washing feet. And he was basically saying, this is spiritual leadership. It's care for the people that translates into real-time love and service of them. He says, serve them in that way, not lording it over them, but being examples to the flock. Being the people that you look at and you say, that's what we want everyone to become. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, you know, the most remarkable thing about the elder qualifications, it's that they're unremarkable. There's nothing that exceptional about them. It's simply faithful Christianity, but done in in an exemplary way where you look at them and you go, man, I wish everyone were doing that. I wish everyone were living like that. And so he says, be an example to the flock. And then he says, be prepared for the, for the Lord's return. Verse four, and when the, chief shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. It's hard right now. I'm not gonna pretend it's an easy task to shepherd a flock. And there, there's a reason why the statistics are so alarming right now, where I don't know the exact number at the moment, but it's around half of the pastors have indicated that they have seriously considered quitting within the last several months. That the, the task is not easy. Peter is not suggesting in any way that the shepherding task is an easy one. He's saying you need to do it understanding the high calling that it is and with the right motivations to do it well. And so around here, we take this very seriously. I take this stuff to heart. I look at these things and I, and I prayerfully consider how I might live up to this high calling. The eldership team, as we've developed it, we, we are very serious about these sorts of things. There's a saying out there that goes something like this, as the eldership goes, so goes the church. The leadership of the local church, it's, it's no trivial thing, which is why we're so careful with it. Um, I'll tell you more about an elder nomination that we have that will be voted on on December 11th. I'll tell you about that at the end of the service here today. But we, we think very carefully about these things. How can we develop an, a shepherding team that looks and feels like this? And we're not going to take any chances on this. You can't just throw random warm bodies at it. This is a this is high and holy calling. And, and we, we take it very seriously. So, The first word is to the leaders. For the well-ordered church, you need well-ordered leadership. The second word is to the young. Look at verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. You you can have great leadership, but if people aren't willing to follow, game over. It says young people, submit yourselves to your elders. And uh, as a recovering young person, I understand how hard this is. (laughs) There's something about youthfulness that is prideful. And I I did youth ministry for uh, a long, long time. And a lot of the students ended up going off to Bible colleges or uh, serving in various ministries. or becoming highly involved in local churches. And one of the unfortunate side effects of young people growing in their passion for the Lord is spiritual pride. And you start to feel like you know it all. And youthfulness kind of comes with this baggage of looking at other people and thinking, I could do it better than them. I know better than them. It's zeal, as Paul puts it in Romans 10, it's zeal without knowledge. It's a passion for the Lord that has not been tempered by humility. That's not had the humility rise up to the same level as the passion. And so what you have is a spiritual environment where young people do not respect elders and they do not gladly submit to them. And the the local church then is hamstrung. And uh, it's not simply unique to young people. It's true of all of us. In fact, as a society, the idea of authority is not even a neutral concept. It's negative. So the thought of spiritual leaders exercising authority and us submitting to them, good grief. What are we even talking about here? But the Bible seems to suggest that is the pattern that God has given for the local church. And so leaders need to serve humbly and followers need to be willing to submit gladly. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 puts it like this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. As those who have to give an account. They're gonna, we're, we're gonna ha- I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and give accounting for how I did my job. And it says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So relate to the eldership in a way that reveals your commitment to submitting to their authority. And elders, do your job in a way that makes that easy. But listen, this is what the the Bible is telling us. There's a word to the young, and we need to figure out how we can organize the local church in a way that reflects this. Then a word to all in verses, the second half of verse 5 through 11. He turns this now into into a principle that applies to every single one of us. He says, all of you be humble. The main thing that he's emphasizing here is this spirit of humility. Be humble. Leaders be humble. Followers be humble. All of us clothe ourselves with humility. Look at it here in verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. Clothe yourself with humility because this is the main thing to be done. St. Augustine put it like this. He said, if you ask me what the essential thing is in the religion and discipline of Jesus Christ, I shall reply this. First, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. The whole thing is meant to be done with a posture and spirit of humility. Why? Well, first off, salvation is an act of humility. It's it's depending upon God's saving work for us. We, we don't bring anything to the table other than our sin, our need for salvation. So we come to him and we rely on him by faith to do that saving work of us. And then we are to live in a way that reflects that humility, that it becomes this real-time experience. The vibe of Christianity is meant to be humble. We're supposed to be walking around as the most humble people on earth recognizing our need for god and his saving work in our lives and dealing with other people in a way that reflects that humility clothe yourself with this put it on put this spirit on and and walk in this way because god opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble so humility with god then we need to humble ourselves in this way that we trust in god's ability to work on our behalf verse 6 humble yourselves Therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Put yourself under God's care. In fact, verse 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We have concerns. The world is weird and and things are hard. And as persecution rises, like it did for the first century believers, we have to be willing to say, okay, we got to go to God and we have to place ourselves under his mighty hand. But all too often, the thing that we do is we try to take matters into our own hands this is not how I want it. This is not how it should be. This is not even how God wants it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to make things right. This is telling us, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up in due time. It might not be this week. It might not be this year, but in God's perfect timing, he will vindicate those who are faithful to him. In the meantime, we submit ourselves humbly to his perfect care. We take those anxieties that we have and we bring them to him knowing that he cares for us quite perfectly. Ed Clowney pointed out that repeatedly the church has failed to do this. And he gave a specific example of the Camisard Rebellion in 1685 in France. There was a religious persecution of the Protestant believers. And so the preachers of that day were preaching things like 1 Peter and they were preaching Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't practice retaliation. Don't fight back against this. Cast yourself on God and his ability to care for you. But the persecution was so great that eventually there weren't very many preachers left. Most of them were arrested and martyred for their faith. And so new leaders kind of stepped up into the fold. And the new leaders did not share those convictions. So the new leader said the king of France is the beast in revelation and we better fight him. And they took up arms. And they might have thought that they were following Peter, but they were following Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were following Peter who was willing to draw a sword and try to chop somebody's head off. They were not following the humiliated Peter, the one who was reinstated by the Lord and who had a whole new disposition to the world around him, who was humble enough to say to his fellow elders, hey, we, we've got work to do, but it is, it is not to fight against the evil in this world. So we need to humble ourselves in that way by trusting in the Lord's mighty hand and his ability to lift us up. We need to humble ourselves in acknowledgement that there is an enemy who hates us and he's seeking to do harm. Look at verse 8. Be alert and of sober, sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There is an enemy here And he wants to do great harm to you individually and to the local church. So what is he doing? He's trying to ramp up that persecution. And if that doesn't get you off track, then he will try to distort the experience within the community of faith. He will turn us on one another. And we will begin to bite and devour each other. So here's what we need to do. Humble ourselves enough to say, we have an enemy. We had better be very clear-headed in this moment because he will do whatever he can to destroy us. We had better be thinking very clearly. We can't be fanatical. We can't be erratic. We can't be out of our minds. We have to carefully examine scripture to see what it looks like to to follow the Lord. In fact, verse nine says, resist him. Resist this enemy, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing undergoing the same kind of suffering. One of the most helpful things that we can do right now is become global Christians, is to look across the the canvas of the globe to see what it looks like to follow the Lord. Our experience in America is not that unique. It's not that horrific. It's not that awful even when compared to the, the normal experience of believers throughout church history and around the globe. And so he says the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. That's a sobering thing. The enemy wants us to think this is unique, this is special, this is incredible, we better do something. But God reminds us, no, you be faithful, be good, do beautiful things so that your good deeds may be seen and God may be glorified. Verse 10 says we need to receive from God all that we need in this moment. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong firm, and steadfast. God will give us everything that we need to navigate moments like these. So to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. All of us clothe ourselves with humility. Entrust ourselves to God's provision and care for us. Recognize that we have an enemy and deal with the world in a way that's humble and gracious. Well, the concluding words we find in verses 12 to 14, it's the It's the end of the letter, it's signing off. It's like when you get an email or when you send an email, you say sincerely or warmly or peace out or whatever you say, and you put your name on there. But at the end of a first century letter, they had a little bit more space to do some things. So they they didn't just say, hey, warmly, this is Peter signing out. See you guys. He he gives us three verses, and here's what I note here. It is a very human thing that he does. He shares his co-writer, Silas, he shares the greeting of the church in Rome. She who is in Babylon sends her greetings. He, he says, um, my son in the faith, Mark, also sends his greetings. In other words, it's this very like human experience. And we, we need that because you can't just come into a church and go, okay, what I need is, is sound preaching of the word and then I can just take off from here and I'll be okay. No, there has to be this element of relational connectedness. And that's what I think he's doing in these final three verses. He's reminding us of the, the, the way in which the Christian experience is, is a human experience. And we need one another, and we need relationships, and we need solidarity with one another. You shouldn't just come to church and then take off without ever knowing anybody from here. Our hope is, is that you're, you're growing in your relationships, and then you're doing life together, and then you're helped along in obedience and faith. But he's saying... This is, this is what it's about. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. Stand in this way of truth. The church in Rome, she who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, as, and so does my son Mark. The church is cheering for each other. Then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We don't do that exactly the way that it's described here, but we want to be a place where there is warm and affectionate greeting of one another. In that that culture, it would have been appropriate to see each other and to kiss each other, but it's reminding us of the importance of that human experience of we need each other within the local church to do this. And then finally, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So as we look at chapter 5 and we think about the ending of this letter, we're reminded of the The importance of the local church. We need healthy leaders who are humble. We need healthy followers who will humbly submit to the eldership. We need all of us to clothe ourselves with humility and trust that God is able to care for us. And we need to have this human experience of sharing life together because the local church really does matter and our faithfulness really does matter. So let's be the kind of place that does these things for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that you would help us. We're praying, Lord, that you would give us uh, a sober mind in these moments to think about the work that you're doing. We're praying, God, that you would help us to uh, be the kind of local church that is faithful to you, that's living beautifully before a watching world. Uh, Even though that might be considered strange by all kinds of different people, Lord, would you help us to be faithful to the end? knowing that you will bring glory with you, and we will be rewarded for that faithfulness. Help us to do that, please. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.